All right, Andy, thanks for uh, doing this with me. Um, yeah, man, it's, uh, it's, it's cool to have you on here and, and doing this podcast with me. I mean, we've known each other for a long time and, um, you know, we've had, uh, I've gone, I've been a player for you and, and now, you know, it's, it's pretty strange. I, I work for you and, uh, with you, uh, with the Mariners. With me. And, yep. And, uh, and it's been quite the ride for me and it's funny how our journey sort of collided back together and uh you know you were a coach for me then and you know a coach and mentor for me now and um I don't know man it's it's a lot of fun just to just to think back about all that and um see where we are now um so yeah I just wanted to typically I have people tell their story of change before and and then we get on and, and talk about that but um I'm giving you a pass on it today so uh, I know you got a lot of phone calls, but, you know, I do want to hear maybe uh, a story that, you know, um, pushed you in the direction that maybe you are that you're in now or in, in the career that you took, you know. So um, is there something yeah. that comes to mind that uh, that really stands out? Sure. You know, and it's funny when you bring that up, you know, that period of time, uh, you know, Adam, I can. I mean, just as clearly as I can remember, you know, what happened yesterday, I can remember going to Kennedy high school to watch you pitch, uh, as a junior, mm-hmm. um, you know, Stu Bryan is your head coach. And, uh, there's a, you know, a couple of other high profile, uh, players on that team. And, um, it's just amazing how many years ago that was now. Um, but from a mental skills perspective, um, I think there was, there were a couple of things that happened. Um, I, I think on my own, I began to understand, um, even going back into high school, that there was just this component that was, was having tremendous impact on my performance, good or bad. And it had nothing to do with my swing and it had nothing to do with, uh, um, how I was practicing, that there was just, there was something missing and it would be present at times and then it would disappear. And I didn't have any process or I didn't have any foundation to go back to. So I really couldn't control uh, or even manage what it was. I didn't even understand it. And then when I went to Sacramento city college, uh, Harvey Dorfman came out with his first book, the, the mental game of baseball. And this would have been in the fall of 1989 and you know i remember buying the book there was no internet uh it wasn't sold in bookstores so you had to like you know borrow your parents credit card and call an 800 number and you know seven weeks later the book would show up mm-hmm. type of thing and um and during that time uh i also met ken revisa and ken was in the process of writing his his first book heads up baseball. And so that culmination of, of that period of time, it, 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 it impacted me so intensely because it, it basically gave me a foundation and it gave me some answers that I'd been searching for. And, you know, Harvey's book was kind of the first book out there 
uh, in, in any type of real publication that that dealt with this um, in a baseball specific way. Um, and uh, and then Ken was beginning to write his book, and so Ken and I became very good friends. Um, and he would send manuscripts to me, and I would tell him, "Hey, this makes sense to me," or "This doesn't make sense," or. Um, Hey, this is really good. This is impactful. And, and that process went on for a couple of years. And so when I got into coaching, um, I believe in 93, it, it was the only way I, I understood how to coach. So, um, so you were talking to Ken while you were a player? Yeah. And, well, yes, but you have to understand I really wasn't a player. I mean, I was a player. I was trying to be a player, but the value I was bringing to teams was far more as a coach. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and many teams, I was a starting first base coach, which, as you know, is not the most highly sought after uh, role for a player. <laughs> and, but, you know, in, in, in the middle of my junior year in college, I went from not playing to becoming the hitting coach in the middle of the season. Oh, um, wow. And that's how my, my coaching career started. So I never, I always started from a foundation of, of focus and intent and the ability to be uh, completely committed to what you were trying to do in that moment and how that connected with your body and your body's movements. And it was kind of the only way I knew. So there really, so many people that have to go through untraining, I had a benefit in that. I, I never really had to go through that. Mm. Yeah. The words you just said right there are words that I hear now from you, you know? So <clears throat> you're, you're saying that you, you knew that then. Yes, I had in, in there were things that I knew and I understood and I didn't know how to articulate mm. and I mm. didn't know how to simplify or certainly explain in an, in an impactful way, you know, in a conversation, some of that's taken 20 years, 25 years. Um, and so there were a lot of things that were going on that I I guess you could say might've been a little bit ahead of their time, maybe, but I just didn't have the, the, the needed skills to put it all together into some type of coherent package that could be scaled to a coaching staff and to a team. Um, so the content certainly preceded the ability to deliver it mm, yeah. um, in, in my, in my particular case anyway. Yeah. Did you, did you find yourself when you were at, at city? Um, did you find yourself c- coaching more mental skills and than you, than you were the physical aspect you think, or was that still, you know, cause mental skills weren't obviously a thing then, you know, that wasn't, yeah, you know, uh, you know, in your face, like, hey, you need a mental skills coach, or it's it's an important topic. Um, well, but, yeah, yes and no. I think that I understood at the time that there really wasn't a mental skills coach per se, um, but the physical aspects of the game and the mental aspects of the game. I've never viewed as being separate. Mm -hmm. And I, I think if you one if, if, if you ignore one, 
you've got a problem. Two, if you try to separate them, there's a problem. I don't think you can separate them. They are one. And so trying to coach a movement without understanding the mental cueing associated with that movement or the focus at that that creates that movement, I, I just think it's bad coaching. And so I was coaching through this lens, but I, you know, I mean, I've been a hitting coach. I've been a pitching coach. I've coached catchers and fielders. I mean, I've literally coached every position on the field at different times. And it's always been through this lens of where does your mind need to be in this moment? And what do you need to be focused on in this moment to have your body move in this particular way? Mm -hmm. Do you think, do you think you have, you know, can you spot that in a player if you spend enough time with them and can you like, can you sort of go, like after you spend enough time, just be like, yeah, this guy is someone that's really got it in that, you know, has can lock in when they need to, <clears throat> you know what I mean? Is there, is there something that yeah. you can see after however many years of coaching and being around players? Have you gotten to a point where you can be like after five minutes or a week with somebody be like, yeah, this is the guy that may not be as good physically or, the same as in another guy, but this is the guy I want because of his mindset. Um, I don't know if I can say that because I think, you know, the, the coach in me is always wanting to say that, you know, people are always growing and developing and getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would always resist the urge to say somebody can't. Yeah. Um, but what I, I do think, I've had the ability to do is watch athletes move and understand what's pro- what's likely going on in their mind at that time. Mm-hmm. That's creating that good and bad. Um, and I don't think it's a special skill. I just think it's observing. And if you understand that a body is only going to move in accordance with what the mind is, is, is thinking and trying to accomplish at that moment, it's really not that hard and it kind of makes sense. Um, but you have to believe that and you have to believe that, you know, and you and I have had this conversation and I've, I feel like I've been pounding this table for like 15 years now that you have to believe that there's no such thing as muscle memory mm-hmm. muscles. There is no, there's nothing within a muscle that's going to let it remember anything. Memory only resides in the brain. And so whatever your body's doing at a particular moment in time is always a result of what's going on in your head. And so if, if you don't believe that, you probably, you, you, that's a fork in the road, I think. Mm. Um, so, yeah, when, you know, if you watch it, you watch your pitcher pitching and you watch how his delivery starts to, to unravel, you know, there's a reason that it's unraveling now if it's late in the game, it can obviously be fatigue and they're just not physically conditioned to be pitching to this point in the game. And that's real too. Um, you know, but certainly early in the game and you know, you know, this from not only your work in, in mental skills, but from your, um, career as a professional pitcher, there, there's, there's a handful of traps and most pitchers are impacted by them. And, you know, back to back, really hard contact 
you know, that's a test for pitchers mm-hmm. and that's a test. And, and you, you, you begin to see, um, you know, what's going to happen to their delivery now. Um, you know, does it slow down? Does it speed up? Um, so, um, mm-hmm. yeah. kind of a long answer to your question there. Yeah. And, and thinking about the muscle memory thing, I, I almost think that like we have a, you know, our, our muscle memories in our brain and how we've, we've responded or reacted to things our whole life, you know? So if you've always responded a certain way to adversity or, um, fear or comfort in a certain way, then we're going to tend to keep doing that because that's the way we've survived almost. Um, and I, and I think that bleeds into when we are on the mound or in the box or whatever, um, naturally we're going to respond in the way we've been conditioned to do that. Um, and I think a lot of, a lot of the mindset stuff comes from, uh, understanding the complexities of that, right? Like, is this a good way to respond? Am I responding the right way to this moment? How do I need to respond better to this moment based on my conditioning? You know, correct. Correct. Yeah. And so your responses, you know, they do become habitual mm-hmm. and they do, you know, at, at, at any moment in time, your, you know, your, your self image is just kind of the, the running total of every thought and image you've had about yourself mm. and it, it's always running. And so, you know, when you're in situation a and you respond in a certain way, the next time you're in situation A, you're likely to respond the same way unless you are very intentional and purposeful and you're doing the work beforehand to realize I have a choice to make here. I can go one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And over time with enough awareness around deficient behavior, the deficient behavior can, can disappear and be replaced with something more effective. And, um, and so, yeah, you're 100 percent right. It's no different than anything else. It's, it's just habituated behavior, and the more you ingrain it, the the deeper the hole you're digging. And but it works both ways too. It's not just in negative uh, or deficient behavior. The the positive responses are habituated the same way. So, yeah, you said all the key words there. Just the the awareness and choice. Um, and you, yeah, you can't really make a different choice without the awareness, you know, so that, yeah, that all really resonates with me for sure. Um, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. You got something else? Yeah. Well, that awareness and, you know, the growth as a, as really as a person, as an athlete, Mm -hmm. it's all about moving awareness moving the needle with awareness and, and that basic model. And there's a, there is a term for this model and I don't know what it's called, but you know, you start with having no awareness. Then you proceed to having awareness after the fact, then you proceed to having awareness during the fact, Mm -hmm. then you proceed to having awareness before the fact. And that's growth. So now, as a pitcher, you know, let's say you give up a, a ringing double off the wall and then a home run. Okay. If you have no awareness of what's going on, you're likely going to bounce two breaking balls and fall behind two Oh, 
because you're pitching afraid. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you don't even know it happened, you know, then with some awareness and some thought and some reflection, you realize, okay, I just did that. The next time, maybe you realize it while you're doing it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then you continue the model and the next time you give up that double and that homework before you get back on the amount, that voice takes over and says, you know, Hey, we're going to meet this challenge with aggressiveness and I'm throwing a four seamer down over the middle of the plate to get back ahead and get back into account. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm going to respond with courage. I'm going to respond with aggressiveness. I'm going to respond with some intent rather than have a fear-based response. And, you know, that's progress. That's growth. That's how you get better. And it's just moving the needle with awareness. That that's why I love sports right there, because that transcends a life, right? Like that's like, you're not going to survive or really be that successful or progress without those things. Right. Like I, I think sports is almost forced awareness in a lot of ways and because of so much failure, no matter what the sport is. Yeah. Um, if you, well, if you, you know, don't, if you ahead. don't, if you don't shift your awareness or don't understand quick enough or adapt, you're not going to be in the game very long. Um, you can kind of survive in life. I think a little bit longer, Like I don't know how far you're going to go. Um, but like with sports as a, as an athlete, as a player, you're not, I just think there's a limit to how far you can go without understanding, you know, yourself, the situation and how to respond. To yeah. It. Yeah. I completely agree with you. And I think that's one of, um, you know, I, I, I think not only in baseball, but I think in, in most sports right now, there's a bit of a, of a crisis going on where, you know, youth sports, amateur sports, um, they're all being coerced and, and driven and molded into trying to create professional athletes when the reality is, you know, the value of high school baseball or even college baseball for me is, is, is letting people grow as people through these experiences that aren't going to lead to a professional baseball career. Mm-hmm. Um, lead to better people and better citizens and in most sports again that that constant awareness and and competitiveness that has to happen every play every pitch and the ability to reflect and learn like if you learn how to execute those skills in a stressful environment in a football field on a golf course on a basketball court or whatever those skills transfer into the real world so well, but I think that's, I think that's been lost on so many people. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, that's just like you said, that's the beauty of sports because, you know, why would we ever build a model that has, you know, you know, one half of 1% of, of, of high school players get to play in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. You know, let, let's look at the value of providing for the 100% of them. Um, and how those skills transfer off the field. So, yeah. Do you, do you think, do you think character is a byproduct of 
of sports or being really good at a sport or do you think character is a prerequisite of it? Oh boy. I, I, I would say it's a, you know, a bit of a, a yin and yang thing where I think they build off of each other. Um, you know, I do believe that, that sports develop character and grow character. It also reveals character. And I don't think character is a, it's not a end statement. You know, there's, you know, the road to character, it's an endless road. Mm. And, you know, I, I, just reading something, uh, a fellow named David Brooks, who writes for the New York times, um, his book, the road to character and a, a really great concept. And he talks about, you know, kind of the two versions of you where you're simultaneously as, as certainly as a young adult, early into your career, you're trying to build, you're trying to acquire skills for a resume, uh, to acquire jobs and to achieve and that's perfectly okay. But at the same time, you need to be acquiring skills and, um, uh, as he puts it, you're, you're either, you're building towards your resume or you're building towards your eulogy. <laughs> and I, I think it's such a, a, such a wonderful, um, uh, model to think of, mm. you know, cause they are kind of different at times. Yep. There's certainly some overlap, but it's that understanding of, of, you know, what could be a better pursuit in life than just trying to become a better person. And, um, you know, the world, it's fascinating, Adam, there's this, you know, the the word DNA, you know, you're, you're trying to overcome your DNA. That's what life is ultimately about is, you know, trying to be better than than the blood that's pumping through your body and the chemicals that are in your body, and trying to to overcome them, um, and not being um, kind of defined um, by what's inside you. What do you um, can you explain that a little bit better? I, I don't. I'm not sure if I'm yeah. with you on that. Yeah. I, probably because that's a very odd concept, but no, I love it. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it's fairly normal to be, um, I, I guess the word would be con- constrained, contained to be burdened by the normalcy of your, the, the chemistry of the chemicals and the blood going through your body. And I'm talking about mental health. I'm talking about depression. I'm talking about anxiety. I'm talking about insecurity. I'm talking about being fear-based. All of these things are chemical. Mm-hmm. All of these things you're born with. And I think that without real intent and focus and a dedication and a purpose and an understanding of these things, you're going to be constrained by that. Mm-hmm. That's what normal people do. I don't want to be normal, and I don't want the people I coach to be normal. I want them to be better than normal. And I want them to overcome that Mm. and, and to know that you can, and you don't have to be constantly at, at the mercy of, of your impulse. You don't have to be at the mercy of your DNA. Um, you know, you can get through anxiety. You don't have to live a life that says, you know, 
I'm going to, I, I'm going to protect myself and not put myself in the situations that trigger my anxiety. I'm going to overcome them. And so that's what I mean by that. Um, and it's certainly a lifelong challenge, I would guess. It certainly is for me. Yeah. That, <clears throat> I love that, man. That's, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about like just our human nature right there when you, when you say that and how uh, something that you and Jerry always used to say is, you know, not taking the path of least resistance. And that's sort yeah. of the first thing that comes to mind with that is like, you know, <laughs> that was so ingrained in me when I was there at Sac City. And now I'm very aware of when I am. And it's almost like that's part of our nature is to be comfortable, right? <clears throat> to find comfort and ease and, you know, but it's also in our nature, I think, to progress and strive and survive. And yeah, I think we make those choices all the time. Um, and yeah, you got me thinking about, you know, <laughs> the DNA, right? Like what, what is it? Like, where do we get stuck in ourselves? Like, it's like this constant game of, uh, us against ourselves. Right. Um, constantly. I mean, it's you versus you. Before it can be me versus you, it's gotta be me versus me. Right. And, you know, and I believe in you and I have had this talk offline of, you know, this concept of belief, but like, I believe like the behavior that we saw two days ago uh, of people basically overrunning the, the, the nation's capital. I believe that that behavior is inside of everybody. Mm-hmm. I think the ability to behave in different ways is inside. I mean, there is, there's really good in everybody and there's really bad in everybody. And it's, and that's obviously an extreme version, but I think when I see what, when I, when I watch what happened there and I look at it through a lens of mental health, you know, that's what happens over a, a long period of time of bombarding your brain with a certain message. And it just shows again, how malleable the brain is. And, you know, we have endless, endless examples through history of how, that bombardment of messaging can be used in a, in a bad way and how it can be used in a great way. So I think you always have to, you know, kind of have that sense of humility that each of us has a brain that is incredibly malleable and can go in different ways unless we're very intentful. Yeah. It's uh, derailed now. What's that? What'd you say? Andy, did I lose you? <laughs> All right. All right. Well, maybe we'll uh, try to get Andy back on here. I don't know what happened. I can. Um, you, can <clears throat> you can hear me? I can hear you. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I wasn't hearing you there for a minute. Okay. Um. Yeah, I. what you said there is super powerful. Like, we, you know, it, it's we don't need to go down the rabbit hole there too much, but, um, the, the distinction of understanding that we have this crazy power of, 
um, in our brains, uh, we're all the same, right? Like we, we could have been in that capital just as much as they were, right? Like we, we have so many choices to make and, um, deciphering information. And, um, it's, I think that's really well, it, what you just said really resonated, right? Cause it's like, we're not different. We, 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 it, yeah, go ahead. It's the consistency of messaging and mm-hmm. what you're feeding your brain. Mm-hmm. And like, it goes back to, you know, Frankel's book and, you know, man's search for meaning. And this is, again, this is a book Ken gave me in the late eighties, I believe. And there's that section of the book where he's talking about being in the concentration camp in Auschwitz and, and him having this awareness that there were Nazi guards that actually behaved with extreme kindness towards the prisoners and that there were prisoners who behaved incredibly poorly towards the prisoners. And through that conversation in that section of the book and that, that realization that, okay, the, the Nazi guard, he does have the capacity and the ability to be kind in a moment mm-hmm. while he's also, you know, committing a horrific crime mm-hmm. at the same time. And that he was held prisoner with people who would behave, you know, really poorly and it and again it's just that that constant understanding that we all have the capacity at any given moment to behave in different ways it comes down to choice um and so again going back you know 15 minutes ago to that earlier conversation about it is a choice when i walk into the batter's box or when i step on the mound of how i'm going to think and Sometimes the choices are easy to make. Sometimes the choices take tremendous courage and a lot of practice. But if you ever give up that idea that's a choice, you're giving up responsibility. And when you give up responsibility, you're giving up power. Mm. And now you're a victim. Uh, And and you really can't have it both ways, unfortunately. Well, I guess fortunately would be the better way to put it. Yeah. Wow, this is a good one. (laughs) <laughs> something that i that's that's coming up right now when you're when you're saying this is uh you know we have this ability right and we are this power and we an awareness and we can move away from that power and be aware of it or or you know just ignore it um but it, i i don't know why this is coming up but something that you've you've definitely uh you know i don't know what the word would be but uh you talk about the drift a lot and i really want you to explain that and i think it fits here with what we're talking about because i think we do have a tendency to move away from things that we know are are good for us and um I don't know what that is about humans. You know, I, I, I think we tend to move away from things that, uh, either are, you know, we know are going to make us better or we know are the right things to do. And we drift off of those things. Um, and I don't, you know, I think it might be a lack of just like, because of time, you know, we, we tend to forget things that we know are 
may be good for us or we just do it voluntarily. Um, but anyway, I don't, I don't know if that really fits for what you're going to explain how the, the drift works for you, but that's been super impactful for me when I, when I got over to Seattle and, and we started talking like that is one of the most important things that I've heard you say is, um, not, not letting the drift happen. And can you explain yeah. that a little bit more? Sure. So I, I, I agree. I think the drift is a foundational piece. I think it's a, um, it, it is a pillar of, of trying to, <laughs> trying to be great, trying to overcome your DNA. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, you know, the drift comes from that basic story that we talk about. You go to the beach, you put down your, your, you know, your cooler and your, and your towels, and you kind of set your stuff up on the beach. You run out in the water, you, you, you play around the water for an hour and you look up and you're a hundred yards down the coast mm-hmm. and you didn't realize that the current was pulling you in a certain direction. Um, and so now you, you get out of the water and you got to walk a hundred yards back to where you started and you had no idea you were drifting. So humans drift, humans drift, teams drift, organizations drift, countries, civilizations drift. And the, the, the key part is that you have to understand that there are so many currents that are pulling and tugging on us, pulling us in different directions that we usually don't know about. We can't feel them happening because they're very subtle. And so the impact of a drift, maybe on a day, you don't feel too much, but that small drift, all of a sudden you wake up two weeks and you're not doing the things you were doing two weeks ago. And you don't even really realize it. You don't know how you got from where you were to where you are now. And so these drifts happen physically in terms of routines. They happen attitudinally, uh, mindset wise. And we just have to have that constant awareness, but most importantly, we have to have something that we're anchored to. And, um, everybody asked me about the drift and the anchor. Oh, these are Mariner themes. No, that's purely coincidental. Um, you do have to have those anchors and, you know, a lot of what, we've tried to create from a cultural uh, mental skill standpoint, you know, it can kind of go back to religion and faith. You know, that's why people go to church every Sunday. That's why people pray every day. They're anchored to something and they know that they're going to drift. So they have a built in process to bring them back to neutral, bring them back to their anchors. And so um, why do we drift? Um, you know, for me, the biggest thing in, in, in baseball, is it's just the scoreboard. It's the pressure for results. And so we drift away from our process and we drift towards results. Um, but there's also boredom, you know, you can be doing really good things and getting really good results and you just get bored with it. And, you know, that's the fascinating thing to me, but I, I find it all the time. You know, hitters can be swinging the bat really well and they just get bored and oh, I want to try this now. So boredom is real in our sport. It's not football where you have to fire it up, you know, for 16 to 20 Sundays with six days in between. You know, I mean, if you're a position player, 
and you're playing every day, if you're a reliever and you're getting hot every other day, mm-hmm. you know, starting pitchers, I think, are saved a little bit because of that five-day rotation. But, um, you know, the schedule is, is a huge drift. And, you know, the quality of your thought process on opening day is usually greatly deteriorated by July um, unless you have that anchor that you go back to constantly. So I don't think it's so much an an issue of of eliminating the drift because I don't think that's possible. It's just a constant challenge of who can catch the drift sooner and get back to their anchor. And that anchor is is both in, in physical routines of work but it's also in mindset and attitude. Um, usually that attitude needs to be kind of founded in, in some combination of humility and, gra- and gratitude. Um, when those two things go, um, the, the building tends to crumble on top of those when, when, when those are lacking. Um, so how can I build in a, a, a process and a structure to get reps of, of gratefulness every day. How can I build something in to get reps of humility every day? Um, and that's hard. So, yeah, I've never heard you talk about that. Um, like what an anchor is in humility and gratitude being, being a part of that. Um, I love that. I mean, that's, it's so simple. And, and yeah, it, it is. And well, I, I shouldn't say it's, uh, you know, it's that saying it's easy. It's just not, no, it's simple. It's just not easy. Yeah. And, um, but that was, you know, that was the big takeaway from, from Kerr's, you know, book legacy about the all blacks was, you know, when, and I think, I think this gets lost in translation a lot of, you know, the idea of sweeping the sheds. And so you've got this elite rugby team of international superstars and the two team captains have to clean the locker room Mm -hmm. and it becomes like the biggest honor in, in rugby, which is to play for the all black and to be in charge of cleaning the locker room. Mm -hmm. So what they've done is they've created physical acts of humility and and gratitude. And you can't just put humility on a t-shirt or on a wall yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you, what are the physical behaviors mm-hmm. that, um, you know, that help create it? And, um, it, it's hugely important. Why, why is that so elusive in baseball? Uh, well, I think there's two things. I think that one, you, the combination of, of, you know, in America, I, I, there's such a, uh, an entitlement. Um, uh, that goes. I mean, it was being in America. I mean, it's it's. I don't know why it is. Um, there's a spoiled. Um, um, so you have this combination of professional athletes, professional sports in America. It's just kind of a a perfect storm um, of entitlement, yeah. and 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 you have to start looking at these words as not good and bad, but just they are what they are. And we're all entitled. You know, we all have egos. We, we, you know, we all, um, 
have these versions of us inside of us, but at the same time, we have the other versions too. And, you know, so when I say a so-and-so, you know, a lot of entitlement there, I'm not saying he's a bad person. I'm saying that there's that he's behaving in a way that's inside of him rather than in, rather than behaving in a different way. Mm. Um, because we all have really, really good versions of us inside of us and we have deficient versions and I've never met anybody outside of maybe Austin Knight, um, <laughs> who doesn't, you know, um, it's a, uh, that's a joke, but, um, it's a good name drop, you know, that's good. Yep. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's like almost finding you, I, yeah, like the entitlement that we all have in discovering the levels of that entitlement and how it fits within, you know, our abilities to, you know, play or just live, you know? Um, yeah, that's, a, that's a good yeah. thought. Yeah. And I think it goes back to that awareness thing mm-hmm. of, am I, am I behaving right now out of entitlement or am I behaving? Am I, is this insecurity that I'm feeling right now? Um, and I guess that's probably like an evolution of mine where 25 years ago, I would have talked about like eliminating it. And now I understand that's just not part of being human. Um, well, we've all done really bad things. When I say bad things, obviously I'm talking about, you know, within the spectrum of, you know, I've treated people poorly in my life. Mm-hmm. I've had situations that I've really handled poorly. Um, I've had relationships that I've, you know, let disintegrate because of poor behavior on my end. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody else has too. And so it's just the awareness of how am I behaving right now and where's it coming from? Um, And that to me, that's growth, not in the elimination of it. It's in the understanding of it. And, you know, which version of me is is walking in the door today. Um, So. The pause that remembers, man. Boom. (laughs) The pause that remembers. Isn't that great? (laughs) I I, I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I I don't know. I, I just feel like, um, there's so much here, right? Like I feel like there's almost like two separate conversations going here and like, but I don't know if they are separate. Like part of me feels like the things we're talking about relates to sports and being a great athlete. Um, and then is that separate from just being a great human being? You know, when you talk about, you know, the being like having poor, uh, you know, you treated someone poorly or, you know, relationships or whatever. I remember those moments in my life more than I remember any good moments, you know, like they're so (laughs) distinct in my mind where I, like I, you know, they bring you down, you know, like for me anyway, I like, I think about them like, God, why did I do that? You know, more so than why did I, why did I, you know, decide to throw a heater, you know, uh, you know, middle into Frank Thomas, like it doesn't, you know, it's way different. I don't even remember that moment, but I, I do remember all the moments where I feel like my character was revealed or my, a a poor response was revealed. It was like, I don't know what that is. Um, I, (laughs) 
maybe that's, well, that's why hard because that's, maybe that's why I didn't play ten years because I don't remember the bad pitching moments as much as I do the bad personal moments. Well, again, I, I, I mean, we all have it. I, I, um, most people beat themselves up over their deficiencies more than they feel good about the positive aspects of their of, of who they are. Um, which again goes back to over time, imagine what that's doing to your self image, you know, and that's the kind of the, the issue with this whole thing of, you know, we remember things based on the intensity of the emotion that we attach to those things. And you will never forget if you're my age where you were on nine 11, yep. you know, and you'll never ever remember what you were doing on nine ten or nine nine, <laughs> and so if over time, over a lifetime, you you habituate, a, you know, really strong emotions to your failures, but yet you don't celebrate successes, you're just chipping away at your self image, <laughs> and and this again, we're going to run out of time here, but this is why confidence is so elusive for people. And I've said this forever. And this was something that I just noticed very early on. We work so hard for confidence, but yet we don't like it. We don't like confident people. They're irritating. You know, they're, they're blunt. They're rude. They're, you know, oh, they're arrogant. No, it's not arrogant. It's confidence. And and, and so one of the biggest challenges to confidence is getting over that. I don't care what this person thinks about me. I'm going to think however I need to think to do what I need to do. And so going back to what you said a couple of sec- minutes ago, is there a difference between trying to be a great player and a great person? I don't think there is. I just think it's that awareness piece of, of you're wearing different masks. You're being a different person. You are, when you go on the field, Adam, like you have to make a choice. I'm out here competing and I'm trying to beat this person and I'm not trying to inflict harm on them, but I am trying to send them home as a loser. That's not a mindset that you really want to be in off the field. You know, um, you have to be willing to, as you said, I'm throwing this fastball into Frank Thomas. You have to be willing to say, I'm going to throw this fastball. It's going to be 95, and it might hit Frank Thomas in his hand and break it. And if it does, I'm okay with that. I'm not happy. I'm not trying to. But it's, 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 and if he hits a blind drive 110 miles an hour off my kneecap, that's part of this too. And so there is that, that you know, you got to be where you got to be when you got to be there. You know, I probably want Adam Bonero to behave differently on the mound than I want him to behave at dinner. Yeah. And so how you, and most people fail miserably in these, um, transitions. And so when you take the, you know, Adam Bonero off the field mentality on the mound, you're going to get your ass kicked and you deserve to get your ass kicked. Okay. But when you take, you know, the competitive mindset of Adam Bonero off the mound and you take it into your house, you're probably not that nice of a person. 
you're probably not that fun to be around. Mm -hmm. And so you do have to learn how to transition out of multiple mindsets. And there's that competitive mindset that's really important. There's that training in developing, practicing mindset that's really, that's really important and they're different. And then there's that being off the field mindset. And, you know, that's why athletes get into trouble off the field. You know, imagine playing an NFL football game on a Sunday afternoon and trying to transition out of that mindset, you know, a couple hours after a game in a restaurant. You can kind of understand why they tend to get in trouble at times, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so um, it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. I know you got to go, man. Um, I I got. I, I think we could go forever, though. Here, I mean, I, I, there's so much. There's a bunch of questions I have written down here still, but uh, maybe another time. Uh, I think the most important question that I have for you. It's a short one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Put yourself back in into coaching, um, and I want you to really think about this. Who would you rather have as a young pitcher, a young Adam Bernero or a young Jerry Depoto? <laughs> well, <laughs> since I knew you when you were 16 or 17, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, obviously Jerry had a, a, a better career, um, <laughs> made more money. Um, but you know, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, I don't know. It's, it's funny. Like I, I think of Jerry's career and obviously I didn't know Jerry while he was playing. I've always, I've often wondered what it would be like, what he was like as a player. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I think I've got a decent idea of it now just being around him, but, um, I guess I would take the, the very, political answer which is both of you walked onto a major league field and threw a pitch which which puts you in the elite 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 of all time um you both accomplished something that um you know only twenty thousand people in the history of the world have ever done so um very politically either way right there that was <laughs> either way i'd be happy <laughs> All right, so. man. All right. All right. Good one to end on. Thanks, Andy. I'll talk to you. Okay.